Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about icons. And the thing about icons is, Dennis knows a lot about them. I can literally just bring him an icon and say, who's this? What are they doing? Why does it look that way? And he will be able to give me the most profound answer. So you are definitely in for a treat this week. Also, I have some, I guess, somewhat bad news. We are going to go on hiatus for a little bit this summer. We don't know how long, but we will let you know as soon as we do. But basically, my wife is having our second child. And then also doing a podcast every week for an entire year is kind of draining and it's really hard to get all three of us in a room and our schedules lined up and everything so we're going to take a little bit of a break for those two reasons but we will let you know when we come back but this is not the last episode we do have two more episodes we have two young visiting priests come in very amazing stuff so we do have two more episodes this season i guess you could call it and then we will return sometime uh, mid to late summer so without further ado episode 45 of the liturgy guys enjoy going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Right, icon, icon, io. Dennis, are you ready? My grandma said, "Your grandma must set your flag on fire." Talking about hey now, hey now, icon, icon, io. Take it away, Dennis. Icons. I want to talk about the contachion of the triumph of orthodoxy. I can let you do that. Contachion of the triumph of orthodoxy. Triumph of Orthodoxy. What does that mean? Yeah, what does it? What does the Kentakion? What is that word? Well, Kentakion is a kind of hymn-like prayer used in certain Eastern rites. Um, and you know what heterodoxy is, don't you, Jesse? Yeah. Oh wait. That's a boy oh, dox wait, and a girl dox. No, you said I was thinking of the like hyloform. What was the thing? Hylomorphic. Hylomorphic. Yeah, that's the hey, word. Can I we uh, stick with? Oh, this sorry. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, Triumph of Orthodoxy. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Well. Way back in the day, there was the church, and then there became the Orthodox Church. So the triumph of orthodoxy is the same reason we call people like Eastern Orthodox or Russian Orthodox, because there were people arguing about whether or not you should have icons, why you shouldn't, whether you should make icons. Any guesses why you shouldn't, why they would have argued you shouldn't make icons? Okay, I think I remember you talking about this before. My guess, my educated guess, is that um, you couldn't properly depict God so why try something like that well god was unknowable beyond us and there are all these prescriptions in the old law after the golden calf you make no graven image right don't make any image that you might be tempted to worship and so there's plenty of uh, prescription against that in the old testament but then there's other places like in the temple where it says make an ark and put an angel on it on each side and there's all these rules to make images so if you get a little puritanical sometimes you just um get caught on one word from scripture or not but anyway you know these iconoclast, iconoclastic controversies in different what's iconoclastic iconoclasties means an icon breaker clasties is the greek word for break so there are a bunch of people out there saying you can't make images of christ or angels or saints because it's impossible and it's forbidden by god 
And then other people come, well, of course you can. You know, Christ was an image of the Father, and we've been doing this forever. And, they, and it wasn't just like a, a few people in a room over coffee saying, what's a good idea? They were battling it out. There were emperors that were for or against icons. They would cut the hands off of iconographers. They put people in jail. There's dividing cities and all that. And so they were duking it out. And finally, 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 after St. John Damascene solves the problem for them, uh, they say, the Orthodox position has won, and they had a big feast day called the Triumph of Orthodoxy, and that's why the Orthodox Church is called the Orthodox Church to this day, because it's the church that believes in icons. Hmm. So in order, the people who don't believe them, of course, were the, the heretics, or whatever you'd call them, heterodox uh, people. So they, they had a feast in the liturgical calendar. You know, bum, 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 we figured this out. We have settled on the sacred image, and they developed this little hymn to be said at that feast. And it goes like this. No one could describe the word of the Father, but when he took flesh from you, O Theotokos, that's Mary, he consented to be described and restored the fallen image to its former state by uniting it to divine beauty. So we'll go through this line by line. But then it says, we confess and proclaim our salvation in word and images. It's very interesting stuff. Wait, I have a quick question. The icon breakers, the mm -hmm. iconoclasts. Iconoclasts. They, which ones were they? They're the ones who wanted, who liked icons, or they didn't. They wanted to break them. Okay. They didn't like them. At well, all. I didn't know if it meant they were breaking from the norm of not. No, they them. were okay. taking icons and smashing them on the ground. Oh, yeah, so, literally. Yeah. Okay, got it. So you know, this word icon in Greek means um, to resemble. Echinai is the Greek word for resembling, and so it, the Latin word is similis, meaning like similar. But it's it's one thing and it's two things at the same time. It's one and together at the same time. And, the, you know, Scripture is full of images. In fact, people would argue that Scripture is image itself. The words of the Bible are images through words and prayers and poems. Uh, you know, Mother Teresa can make an image of Christ by taking care of the poor. You can make an image of Christ by, you know, being nice to your kids. The liturgical gestures are very clearly doing what Christ does. So there's lots of images of Christ. What are you going to say, Chris? Uh, I was thinking of this uh, uh, St. Ephraim. Uh, the deacon um, from the Eastern Church, and mm -hmm. he would talk about what you had mentioned before about being described, which it, maybe I'll get back to this right. To scribe is to scribble or to draw a line, and he would talk about uh, I suppose script is, it, is that related to scripture as well? Yeah, the writing. Case, writing. Okay, so he would say uh, Ephraim would say that uh, the word of the Father became circumscribed with right. words of uh, human language. And so the eternal word became kind of contained within scriptural words. Right. Human he drew words. a line around himself. Yeah, That's yeah. what circumscribed means. Hmm. Particular word there, obviously. <laughs> but they had to settle these problems, you know, and St. John Damascene comes along and uh, argues for this and that. Finally, he comes around with the idea, hey, God did it, by the way, you know. He didn't want the the Jews to worship the golden calf, so therefore he forbade images that would likely become idols. But he took form. He took a shape. And because he did it, we can do it too. So uh, sometimes you hear about, well, what's a person who uh, makes an icon called? An oh, icon maker? Icon iconographer. Icon iconographer. Icon iconographer. Um, iconographer, right. <laughs> Could not get graph. that one out. So graph is to write. So it's, you know, yeah. there's this back and forth. Whether you know, the Westerners were always afraid of being ignorant to the Easterners. So we always say, oh, but you don't paint an icon. You write an icon because it's mm -hmm. like scripture. Talk to some Eastern people. They're like, nah, we're not worried about that. We make icons. <laughs> we paint icons. <laughs> You're the only ones worried about calling us iconograph. Iconograph. Iconographers, there you go. Yeah. See, we're um, not worried about being ignorant. But the word itself says, no, you write an icon like you uh, write scripture. And an iconoclast is one who destroys uh, images. So here is part of the um, 
the the problem that they had is what if your theology is not so good and you're like oh there's the icon if i go kiss it i'll get healed it's this magic thing that i better go touch and i'll get healed and what's what's the problem there well then you're worshiping the icon right instead of letting it be a sacrament of christ you're treating the object as uh, some kind of magic thing so part of what they worked out at this time was that there's two kinds of worship or two kinds of veneration of things. One is called latria in Greek, which means the worship due to God alone. It's L-A-T-R-E-I-A. L-A-T-E-R-I-A. Wait, what is it? L-A-T-R-E-I-A. But what happens if you're uh, if you worship icons? What do you what are you participating in? Or if you worship anything on earth, you're part of of the heretic idolatry? class. Idolatry, right? Oh, if you okay. worship an idol, that's that word latria right there. So idolatry. Oh. If you worship icons, you're an iconolatry. <laughs> so worship due to God alone. But they came up with this other notion that veneration means you honor and respect something because it will transfer it to its prototype. So if you kiss an image of Christ, you're not really worshiping the paper it's on, but you're uh, venerating the thing that then gives that uh, honor over to you're, you're God. You're kissing the foot of Christ, not just a, a depiction or a statue of it. Right, you're venerating the thing that's in front of you because it mm-hmm. is the bearer of Christ to you. But the worship, if there is any, is transferred to the original, that's Christ himself. So the, the Greek word here was proskinesis. Kind of sounds like a cop out. We're like, no, no, no. It's uh, whatever is worship just goes over there. Hey, if you have a picture, if say you're like in the army and you're overseas and your wife kisses your picture every night, it's not because she's in love with this photographic paper. It's because she loves you, right? And so it's kind of transferred to you even though you're not right there. Mm-hmm. And proskinesis tells you that. Can you think that kinesis is in there? Right. It means to kneel, doesn't it? Well, kinesis is to move, like yeah. kinetic energy. Like kinesis, like your, you're like your brother-in-law. Like your kinesis. brother-in-law. No, but that's a different word. Kinesis, kinetic energy is the energy of movement. So if it moves toward, pro-kinesis, that means it moves toward the original. Uh, sometimes it's called dulia. Dulia. Right. So um, iconodules are the lovers of icons. So St. John Damascene makes the point that we don't worship the materials that the Gospels are made of or the material. Oh, that's a very good point. That's kind of brilliant. But we venerate the scripture because we worship God. Well, also when you say, you know, the word of the Lord, you're not saying the written word of the Lord and the liturgy you're saying, you're saying the spoken word of the Lord. Well, it's uh, it's all the words of the Lord. I mean, you venerate the scripture, but then well, yeah, the word but of the Lord not, has been proclaimed. Yeah, but you don't hold the book up. And you're not say, saying the book where the word of the Lord is written. You're saying the <laughs> right. word of the Lord has just been proclaimed to you. Right. right? So but you kiss the book. Well, right. And you kiss the book because oh, that's the man. bearer of it. Right. So, you know, this will only serve to muddy okay. the conversation. Do probably. it. Do yeah. it. Um, on Good Friday, St. Thomas Aquinas says that, you know, we, we kiss and we adore and worship uh, the cross. The cross. Yeah. How do we get around that? And he, he even says that we, we adore the cross with, uh, with latria. Really? Yeah. I don't know if I would buy that. How come yeah. that's not idol worship? Because as good as the cross is, it's still not God. Yeah. I think he says, uh, I know. That I'm hoping I'm you're going to correct, correct, well, correct I just yourself. threw that out there for you guys to, to resolve. Um, the, so you're uh, saying Thomas Aquinas is an idolater. <laughs> well, wouldn't you be able to say the cross is like above and beyond any type of you know icon, or because of because of how um, you know because of how great the sacrifice was, God coming down like the the image of the cross goes beyond what maybe an icon, a normal uh, something. You know. Possibly, it's not entirely clear. See, and and the the cross on Good Friday seems to be different from the cross on another day, but. That cross on Good Friday, we call the adoration of the cross. We genuflect to it. 
we kiss it. Thomas says we offer the, the worship called latria. Um, those things I'm pretty sure. What, what he'll say is that we worship the cross with the same worship as we do Christ, almost because it's, it's the, the means and the instrument through which we come to God and find salvation. We worship that which brings us salvation, and that is the cross uh, with Christ. But hmm. anyway, we don't need to resolve that. But some, you know, what you're saying, the the icon seems to be a little bit of both of these things, right? It's not just the the picture of your distant husband off at war. It, there's, it's got to have some it's substance and stuff. The key thing it, about right? an icon is that it renders present to you that which is somewhere else. So that's why John Paul and others call it a sacrament. It's not one of the seven sacraments, but it's a sacramental character. So there's a saint or Christ somewhere in his heavenly glory. It's not just a sign with an arrow that says Jesus this way and points you up to heaven. Something of that reality actually comes into our own time and space, and you can encounter the reality of it. And that's the high, high theology of icons. Yeah. But it seems like it's hard really to put a finer point on it than that something of that distant reality right. in some way well that's all you can do present. right because so it's a just, finite participation in something that's infinite but it's real it's real it's a it's a kind of real presence in a sense but uh, just when i thought i grasped something and understood it chris you come swooping in and make it worse <laughs> glad to uh, help <laughs> thanks well let's go back to that contachion this this can be your sort of quiz tell me the uh the theological concepts at work here no one could describe the word of the father before the incarnation, nobody could describe the word of the Father. What do we know about God from that? He's indescribable. Yeah. <laughs> He's yeah. wholly other. He's okay. outside of sensible realities. And uh, you have this apophatic tradition, you know, the things you can't know about God. To God. empty? Yeah. Well, he's, well, that would come next. Okay. Uh, you're thinking about kenosis, I think, but that's not, you, you anticipate. Well, we were never shown a full image of God until Christ, until the word incarnate. Right, so there, there's always stuff you can't know about God. He's fundamentally beyond us always. And yet, he took flesh from Mary, o Theotokos. The Theotokos means the, the God-bearer. So he took flesh from the God-bearer. What does that say about him? Mm. He has flesh. He's been, you can draw a line around him. He's got mm -hmm. a border, an outline. Uh, yeah, you got the incarnation that God took on flesh, and he used Mary to do it. So there's this whole Mariological uh, study there, too. He didn't just come down from sky on, uh, on the sky on a carpet all fully formed. He took human flesh because he consented to be described. There's the kenosis you were talking about. He, kenosis is the self-emptiness. Oh, it's like God saying, I'll allow it. Well, well absolutely. He didn't have to, right? Right. So he showed up with us. This distant, transcendent God became imminent by um, emptying himself. And here's a really cool line. And restored the fallen image to its former state by uniting it to divine beauty. He restored the fallen image. Who's the fallen image? Adam. Um, human nature. Us, yeah, all of us. Um, and creation to its former state by uniting it to divine beauty. So what's divine beauty? Fullness, right? Fullness, wholeness, proportionality, claritas. So by taking humanity, he restored all of humanity to the fullness that it was supposed to have. There's deification and theosis. This, this shows up a lot in the, the Christmas time and Advent uh, prayers at Mass, but the, at the commingling, or I think it's the mixing the water and wine in every Mass, there's this prayer that uh, the priest or the deacon says, by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. That's, that, St. Augustine calls this this divine exchange of Jesus coming down and taking us back up. Right. Imagine if you wanted to, all the slugs in the world were you know, doomed to die and you said, you know what, I'll become a slug. 
that's a lot for us to give up everything we have and become a slug. It's even more when Christ left the the Trinity, so to speak, and became one of us. And yeah, then, I'm and definitely died. feeling sluggish right now. Yeah, so well, you're not going to stay. You don't that look way. like a slug, oh. Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more of a snail guy. So an icon shows us in the material stuff what our transfigured reality oh. might be like. What happens to God, Christ's humanity at the transfiguration? On Mount Tabor, it's radiantly beautiful. Right, it's flat, dazzlingly white with this light. And what happens to his clothes? Dazzlingly white. So not only him, but the stuff he wears, the clothing, you know, boring stuff from the earth, for a second prefigures this glorious uh, reality, this transfigured reality. They often call this taboric because it happened on Mount Tabor. Oh, yeah, Tabor. So to have taboric light means you are radiating out the dazzling glory of your own heavenly future. So everything liturgical is taboric. So if your chasuble doesn't look taboric, it means it's some dull, ugly-looking fabric. If it's radiant, embroidered gold, silk, suddenly it takes on this radiant colorfulness, and it's, it's like a transfigured fabric. I was thinking again of that uh, podcast we did on Pope Francis's commentary on Musicum Sacrum. His last word was about music should introduce us into this luminous cloud, and so that, making that same point. Yeah, he didn't say taboric cloud, but we know what he means. We knew it. Well, we that's knew the what same thing. What's luminous, right? It's filled mm-hmm. with light. And um, so when the essence of an icon is that they make present to us not only the human realities, like a portrait would, but also the divine nature of Christ as well. So it shows Christ not just as the guy walking around in the carpenter shop or on the Sea of Galilee, but in his heavenly radiance and uh, glory. And, you know, one of the questions about the Father is, even with the Incarnation, can you represent God the Father? Can you? I don't know. In the strictest sense? No. No, right, because God the Father still kind of remains ineffable and can't be described, except that he but sends does, his Son. Yeah, I mean, doesn't Jesus say, um, how can you say, show us the Father? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So isn't right. well, he we've the seen Jesus, of, but we haven't really seen well, the yeah, Father. But, but he's the image Jesus, of the Father, We saw right? Jesus in a time where we didn't like do selfies and stuff. So I think God was like, let's get this done before cameras are invented. Well, it all depends on how strict you are. But the strict people say, no, you can't show the Father. You can show the Son. So sometimes in Icons of the Trinity, they'll, they'll show three Jesuses, three brown-haired, brown-bearded, exact replicas of each other, because hmm. if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father, so the Father's Jesus. Whoa. You don't make Jesus look like the old guy. That's like a workaround, though. Well, in a way it is, but you know, sometimes you have to protect. You, know, you don't want God ever to become limited or people to think he's just the biggest bully in the sky. You know, Bishop Aaron talks about that all the time, that if you think God is just the supreme being, then he's always the one that can beat you up in the backyard of the school, right? If he's love itself, then he... Uh, is always out for your good. So you never want to thingify God. That was a German word that they Thingify? Thingify, yeah. What's was, the German uh, word for it? You know? Gedinkt. Gedinkt. God bless you. Don't make God gedinkt, right? Thingified. He's not a thing. He's being itself. He's not the, just the biggest thing around. Hmm. Um, so icons always show this glory, which means every trace of the fall is gone. There's never any chaos or disorder. There's never any alienation from God. So what does that mean visually with an icon? Well, they always have a certain calm, right? Well, first of all, there's this divinized humanity, right? The person's always shown with all their attributes glorified. All their human attributes. Their human attributes. They don't lose their their passions, but they're glorified. So they still have desire. They still have love, except it's all glorified. There's never an icon of a brawl or... Or uh, sad. Fornication. You know, yeah. they might uh, show some of their suffering if it's a, a martyr or something, but it's always a glorified suffering. So it's their divinized humanity. That's always what it shows. So how come you can't show, how come you technically can't make an icon of a living person? 
because you don't know what their glorified being would be like. Right, and you don't know if they're going to have eternity in yeah, heaven Yeah, that's yet. true. And so, you know, people like to make saint images of Dorothy Day or whatever. She's not a saint yet, so you have to wait. And the church proclaims officially, and that's what canonization means. Anybody in heaven's a saint, but a canonized saint is one that the church publicly proclaims. So you, can, you can't do icons of blesseds. Well, sometimes blesseds you can, but you, you don't show them with a halo. Um, they're considered on the way, so you can show images. Yeah, of, but why of would you? If they're on the way, then you just got to redo it anyway. Well, they, but you can't just say, my grandmother died in holy life, and so I'm going to put an image of her in the church. It's the same with like in, a, in a, the Litany of the Saints in a liturgical celebration. You can have saints and blesseds, but not servants of God or venerables or things like that. They don't have that public... Uh, uh, intercession. Right. So there, you know, there are certain parishes that want to push the envelope. Oh, we need to have an icon of Martin Luther King in our church because he was our modern saint for racial equality. Very good guy, but he's not a canonized saint. So you can have you can have an image of him in a historical sense, but not to show him in the heavenly glory yet. And so what icons do is they they don't just say holiness is somewhere. It shows the saint in their holy condition. H O L Y. Their holy condition. It's this. Preservation and of I guess their their whole yeah as their well. wholeness yeah, yeah exactly W H O and but they always preserve a stable iconography you know Saint Peter walked around Galilee with keys all the time no a pair of big honking skeleton <laughs> keys no. they would always know when he was coming Those yeah, it's keys like tying are huge a, like tying a bell around the cat yeah right <laughs> look out Peter's coming I hear the keys no it's so that we know who he is so there's a stable iconography but even the clothing is shown perfected if you look at an icon their folds in the clothing will be perfect their beard will have nice little scrolly curves that, their, you know, hair. Like, their hair is always uh, perfect their so, nose is if yeah. I ever become an icon I hope they draw me with a beard because I can't grow a beard really and that would be pretty sweet to see what I would look like with a beard. Well, see, but your natural, uh, your supernatural condition can't contradict your natural well, one. So there be could the be some. Of your natural they can indulge fold, a little. Fudge a little bit. <laughs> yeah, right. Mm. I'd be an iconoclast at that point. <laughs> <laughs> if beardedness is part of your ontology, Jesse, maybe it's not. So. It's not. Definitely not. <laughs> but, you know, when you see an icon, they're often painted on gold leaf. Uh, on top of a wood board because gold leaf has this reflectivity and radiance and it doesn't it's rust. It's taboric. It is taboric, right? It's like it reflects all the light with this golden tone and gold doesn't tarnish and it doesn't rust so it has this kind of eternal permanence. And it, if you have a gold background, you don't really know where you are. You know, it's not like painting yourself in front of the Walmart or in the mountains of North Carolina. You don't know where you are tonight. Saint Chris of Walmart. <laughs> well, that's part but, of my ontology. You know, but there would be an iconic version of a Walmart if if there was a Saint Chris of Walmart, because they do show buildings in icons a lot. But they're always in their in their heavenly condition, which is very interesting. Hmm. What would a glorified Walmart look like? I don't. I don't even want to go there Save to that be honest. That's the liturgy question. Um, but a, an icon too, and never. You never see uh, the sun in the sky and like deep shadows across their face because they say uh, it's not light coming from outside, it's the light coming from within. So yeah, they're emitting light. Right. For in heaven, you're full of the divine life and it radiates out from you. This is that, um, like that famous image of uh, deification being like fire plus iron. You have this iron, black iron thing, you put it in the heat and then it starts to glow like this radiant yellowish gold color when it's hot. It doesn't change the iron, it's just made it more alive. And so the light radiates out from the iron rather than bouncing off the surface. Hmm. And even when they make icons, when the process of writing them, the first thing they do is lay down all the dark colors. So it'll start with black paint or dark brown paint, and then they'll put all the browns, then all the reds, really? then all the yellows, then all the finally whites. Yeah, so the process is creation coming from out of darkness into what? light. Mm. That is so wow. cool. I know, I know. That is licit and cool. 
Well, it is. <laughs> it is like like most things when you understand them properly, they're listed. Wow, and cool. That's awesome. And well, typically they don't look old. Although sometimes the thinkers, like the doctors, of the church will have these little lines in their forehead. I have a lot of lines. So do you, Chris? The line, you don't have any because all of the hard thinking that we do, Dennis, <laughs> <laughs> and the worry. Um, and so they, sometimes they don't look that excited to see you. You know, the eyes that look a little droopy because they're not really paying attention to earthly scintillation of you know Hollywood red carpet kind of stuff, but they're contemplating with perfect peace and harmony what the face of God uh, might look like. So it requires, when you look at them, a certain kind of prayerful asceticism. You know, uh, someone might look at it and I can say, who's that boring old dude up there, you know, not doing anything. But when you have prayed and you sit with it, you say, oh, they're um, filled with divine life. So in a sense, they say it's a prayer that it teaches us to look and learn what our heavenly realities are. And it's also really beyond our earthly comprehension, like that type of joy and understanding of of Christ, we we don't really know, and so you know we we say we're excited. We get this huge, big you know smile, grin, um, or if we're sad, you know but you will icons like never do that, right? Right. And they're happy. It's like a simple, humble, just totally immersed in Christ. Well, right, because their emotions are now totally peaceful. We don't know what a saint looks like, but we do know that the passions are are not fallen. And so anything that would incite us to uh, get drunk, be rowdy, whatever, calm, 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 calm. Man, so you're saying there's no beer in heaven? There's beer, but we love it perfectly with perfect calm and delight. Oh, man, I cannot wait. I cannot (laughs) wait. (laughs) The idea is our full ontological reality is on display to the most, as far as we can tell. And so that's the nature of an icon. And then, you know, there's an Eastern tradition of the icon. In the Western church, we have iconographic style images, um, but they're often three-dimensional. The Eastern folks who are super strict don't like three-dimensional images because they think it's more likely to become an idol and they look like they're in our space and time rather than an icon, which is always somewhere else. And isn't that the kind of our Western cultural formation is not so much to the eschatological, but more to the historical. We're we're Aristotelians in the West. Start with the earthly realities and work up. They're always platonic in the Eastern church. They like to start with the heavenly realities and let them bust into our world. So the great artists of the Western tradition, like a Michelangelo or a Caravaggio or something like that, I mean, they they are perfectly human. Uh, almost to the exclusion of, I mean, they're perfect, but almost to the uh, exclusion of the the heavenly perfection. So insofar as they can capture what is kind of a a picture or an earthly representation, we we would consider it good. So that seems to be how the the type of appreciation uh, that we have growing up is for more of the historical and less for the eschatological. Is that accurate? Yeah, often, especially in the high Renaissance uh, and in the Baroque period, they had all these saints always in these throes of emotional passions. So you see the statues are swirling, their arms are up in the air. St. Teresa in ecstasy is the angel plunging the arrow into her heart, and she's all um, you know, having this passionate emotional experience. They were trying to push emotional connection to God in that period because sort of the Puritans of the world were denying the value of the emotional response to God. So it was an answer to them. Um, but it wasn't. it's not really an, what an icon is meant to do. An icon always shows you this heavenly calm, um, there's an inscription on it that gives the name of the of the saint, which isn't just so we know. That's like God giving the name to the person. And that's usually Adam giving the name to the things Greek, of the world, right? That's Often it is, yeah. or Russian, depending. But there's never the name of the the iconographer. Never, right? Well, it shouldn't. Sometimes they do it, um, but the iconographer is supposed Uh-oh. to be anonymous, and um, the uh, the face. 
often has this piece. Uh, the forehead will be quite big. I'll, maybe I'll test you guys. Can you guess why the forehead is often quite big? On uh, Because they've like, learned so much. Well, yeah, because they're primarily... No, no, you're right, because there's this intellectual comprehension of God. Huh. So it's the knowing. It doesn't mean that in heaven you get a big forehead. It just means you know. And so this is the way they're signifying it. And the mouth, you think, is big or small in an icon? Small. Right, how come? Because they don't need to proclaim anything. Because they listen more than they talk. Exactly. They're not, they're not yelling at God all the time. Uh, so, how about the ears, big so or small? big ears, big, then. Big, big ears, typically, listening. right? Um, and so the uh, flesh tones are sometimes not too fleshy. So in some traditions, the icon flesh tone is like super, almost green, because they're really trying to say this person is not in our space and time. They're outside of our space and time. If we make it look too much like us, then they're not divinized. It's just pictures of portraits of people. And so you have to break the conventions. You have to establish conventions that are different from our regular reality so that people know what's what. Uh, there's also a whole system with colors, you know, um, blue and red were often symbols of divinity and humanity. Do you know which is which? Well, I would say red is divinity and blue is humanity. Right. Blue is often the color of creation and then red is the divinity. So Mary will often blue. be shown with the blue dress and right. with a red cape because she's clothed in divinity oh. by being created. Uh, and Christ too, sin. I think, has both of those colors. He does, well. except which, how would it work? Would it be blue first or red first? Uh, blue, blue covered in red, red or red covered in red blue? Red covered in blue. Red covered in blue. Right, because the divinity... Then he took on humanity. He so was clothed Mary in humanity. was human, but then transformed oh, by divinity. So, man, then it's a knowledge bomb right there. None, so, none of us has any red on. Right often now. you see Christ in red and blue, but you can imagine if you're, if you're a pastor and you're hiring an artist, and they say, oh, well, let me paint Jesus with blue uh, on the inside and red on the outside. He's, he's not intending to deny the <laughs> eternal divinity of Christ, but he's painting a painting if you know the conventions that's actually saying mm-hmm. Christ was human and took on divinity. So it's not absolute, you know, red lights don't always mean stop. They don't have to, but if you don't know the convention, you might go through a red light. So it's part of the, uh, the thing. So this is uh, the basic introduction uh, to icons. Any questions? Questions? Any yeah, yeah, I have anyone? some questions. Okay. I have a lot of questions, but I'll try to keep it simple. Uh, so sometimes you see icons and it's just a portrait of just a saint. So it's just like from, you know, shoulders up and it's the head. But it's not a portrait. Well, okay, so okay. I, I, I'm not studied in these things, so forgive my... Um, you just listen to a 30-minute podcast I, on it. <laughs> I know. I'm still processing. Um, but then sometimes you see scenes that are... So what would be the difference between those two? That's what I say. What's the difference? Well, icon, you can have iconic-looking things that do different things. So you might have an image of Christ alone, Christ the teacher, for instance. Or you might have a scene of, the, of some sacred history. So the baptism of the Ukraine is a common one you see in Ukrainian churches. It's when, when the Christians showed up and everybody became Christian. So it's an event that's remembered. Very often, though, when you see a regular old person in an iconic or Eastern-style image, they don't look iconic. So there's a little church over the road from us, a Serbian Orthodox church, and they have a little painting in the front door of the bishop who built the church, who was alive at the time, giving a little model of the church in his hands to the Virgin Mary. So he's in the painting. She looks iconic. All of her features are adapted. The, the forehead is big and the ears are big and the mouth is small and the nose is long. He just looks like himself. His beard isn't iconic. It's like this bushy, normal-looking human beard. He's also wearing glasses in the picture because his eyes need glasses. Because he got, got LASIK in heaven. Well, the <laughs> ring restored is kind of like LASIK, right? So no saint ever wears glasses. Even Maximilian Colby, who wore glasses in his life, if you're really careful, you'd never put glasses on him. 
uh, in the picture. You like so tuck like, them in his, his pocket. Or so something. like if there was a saint that was like drawn and quartered, they'd still have their perfected body or like St. Dennis would have his head. Right. And he might carry another head in his hands, but he'll have his head back because oh. he's getting, he's been restored. Who's, whose head is it? Then? It's his head, but it's not for, it's not that he carries two heads around it so that we know who he is. Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, so, uh, okay. So there's different scenes that you can depict. Now, some you told me something about like some banner in a, in an icon. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Well, if you look at um, architectural settings, so something happens, it's a Bible scene or whatever, and there are some buildings there. They do a couple of things with architecture. They do something that's often called reverse perspective. So typically when you see perspective, that means that things look farther away, so they get smaller and they go down to a vanishing point, and so they get smaller going away from you. They'll sometimes make the buildings get smaller as they go toward you, or they make bigger as they go toward you, so that it looks like the scene's actually projecting out into your space, and so that you're in the building. Or they'll go off at crazy angles, just so you know that these are heavenly buildings and not realistic earthly buildings. And then they'll take a little red, um, almost looks like a, a hammock or something, and hang it from building to building. And that just means that it's inside. They don't want you to see, they want you to know that it's inside a building, but they don't want to not see it by having the building there. So this little red hammock over it is the convention that it's indoors. Oh, I always, I've seen that every once in a while, but I never really knew what that meant. Yeah, there's a whole like language of uh, little signs and symbols there that, um, once you've learned, you know what they mean, but they're not always obvious if you haven't been in, in, indoctrinated into that system. Well, maybe we should do an episode just like going through those different things you see in icons, because I, I think this stuff is fascinating, and I didn't even, like the big forehead thing, I didn't know about that. And you said something about a big nose. Why do you have a big nose? Do you smell better? <laughs> There's the big, long nose. Uh, you know, the people who write about icons will tell you every single thing. I don't happen to remember what the nose is about, but it has a certain nobility. You know, the face is very important in an icon. Typically, it shows a face, and the face in icons is associated with identity. The reason I know who you are is because you're, the way your face looks. So they spend a lot of time on the face and less on the hands and the shoulders and the clothing. And so the facial details are always uh, carefully determined. All right. Well, Dennis, thank you for diving into that. I definitely learned a ton of things that I will forget, but some of the things (laughs) I will remember. But I think it's time to uh, answer a liturgy question. All right. Let's do it. I can answer it myself. We'll see. (laughs) So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church, and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Okay, we have an email from Tina this week. Which is so scary that Chris has left the room. Oh, Chris. <laughs> Chris went on a bathroom break, I guess. I yeah, don't know. We, it's about architecture. He doesn't know anything anyway. Well, you know, we had that... Um, 
that Baron episode, and that was kind of an impromptu uh, podcast where he came on and sat down with us, and I, and I was too worried uh, to ask him to stay to do a liturgy question. We all sat there frozen. So we're so we're down one uh, one liturgy question, but Dennis is here, and we actually have a question uh, from Tina, who has a very specific question to church architecture, which Dennis can answer. So Let's see what I can do. Tina says. Dennis, I really appreciate all the insight that you have given in church architecture. I am on a parish commission to remodel our church. What are the first things to consider when doing such a project? Thank you for the podcast. It's great. Well, thank you, Tina. Good listener. Good question. <laughs> um, there are a lot of things to think about, but the number one thing, I guess anybody would, who listens to this will know I'm going to say ontology, right? What is a church? And a church essentially is an altar with a whole bunch of stuff around it because the way the church teaches is the altar is Christ and Christ standing among his people. And so the number one thing to realize is what's number one, what's number two, what's number three in terms of priority. So number one will be the altar. Number two will be the sanctuary. Number three would be the nave. So if you're spending money and you're budgeting for different things, you really want that altar to win the day. It should be disproportionately expensive, so to speak, made of the finest materials you can, enriched, um, you know, with a, a new church, to have a good altar, like most people would balk at this, but ninety dollars to $100,000 really should be budgeted really? for an altar. Yep. Wow. You can get one for less and it, you know, it won't look very altery. But if you really want a top-notch thing and you think you're building $16 million church, you know, what's $100,000? That's, you know, a number of parking spaces. The altar is the reason the church exists. So the old line is the church exists for the altar, not the altar for the church. Hmm. So that's Christ among his people. Then everything surrounds it. So start there, then think of the eschatological dimension of a sanctuary, and that meaning, you know, the, the second coming of Christ, the, the uh, glory of the end times. Think about the, the front wall or the wall behind the altar as a place where you might see the angels and saints and the throne of God and the image of who you're meeting and who you're worshiping with. And those would be the, the first places to start. You look like you have a question, Jesse. Well, no, I was just gonna I was just gonna add. I, I like that because I think when when you start to think about remodeling a church or you know at least redoing some aspects of it, the the cost, the money is always the biggest thing that is the issue. And I like your answer because theoretically you could do it in stages. You know what I mean? Start with the altar, and then you know, then move outward and into the more important. Uh, starting with the most important, going to the least important. So I, I think it's practical, actually, and you could think about it from a fundraising standpoint. You could start with just that one thing and then move outward. Right, and you know, most people uh, will often pay money for things because the bathrooms are terrible and they want bathrooms, or they want a bride's room, or they want a, a football field for the school more than they want a more beautiful altar. But you have a budget, so your your people will tell you how much they think you can raise, and you can either spend an extra twenty thousand dollars, you know, painting the details on the the rear wall of the church where nobody sees it, you know, behind you in the pews, or don't do that and put the money into the tabernacle, the altar, the sanctuary, the devotional area. So, you know, there was a theologian in the twenties named H. A. Reinhold. He was a priest. He said the whole liturgical renewal was about putting first things first, second things second, and peripheral things on the periphery. I think we've talked about that before. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. He said it particularly in architecture. What's the first thing? Altar. What would be a secondary thing? Ambo, altar of reservation. Secondary doesn't mean important. It just means it's next in the hierarchy of things. Then font. So there are your, your, your poles. Altar, altar reservation, ambo, and font. Think about all these things theologically have the money reserved so they can be done right instead of what I often see which is everybody says well the air conditioning plumbing parking spots curbs 
accessibility, all those things. And oh, oh, we need money for an altar too. Oh yeah, let's find it twenty grand somewhere and or a statue, of, you know, Mary or Joseph or you know things like that. Right, and no, don't necessarily run to the catalog and say, oh, there's the fiberglass, you know, lifelike statue that you can find in any church. Really think about: can I find a sculptor who can who's deeply imbued with the tradition of wood carving, say in Germany or or France or wherever it comes from, even in the U.S. How can I make these images be um, radiant with the light and the perfection of Christ uh, or life of a saint, even within your budget? Mm -hmm. So there's always a way. Start really high and say, well, I can't afford a one of a kind, but maybe I can afford something. A three of a kind or a 12 of a kind. Well, right, exactly. (laughs) Starting at the high theology and then building that in. And of course, all of this requires an architect who gets this. If an architect doesn't understand what you want them to do, you can talk at them all day long, but typically they won't know how to design what you're asking for. So really start with people with church expertise, traditional expertise, and then they'll solve all your problems ahead of time. I can tell you more times than not when I've been called into consultants because the architect wasn't up to the job. And then if they had picked the right architect in the beginning, they wouldn't have called me at all and put me out of business as a consultant <laughs> because if you go doctor shopping for doctors who can't diagnose you, you go to doctor to doctor to doctor until you find the one who can. If you went to that doctor first, you wouldn't have to go doctor shopping to get the right. diagnosis. Same thing with church architecture. Get the best skill you can, then start with the most important things and work your way down. Excellent. Tina, I think that's a very good question, and it's actually one that we get very often, or at least, Dennis, you get that very often. So if you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Chris, did you have anything you want to add to that? I think I just heard him fly. He just... He did. <laughs> I th- <laughs> I think I just heard him flush, so he'll be back soon. (laughs) All right, thank you, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.